I've probably mentioned this before, but I have a really bad habit that I just can't kick. I have a bad habit of inevitably spoiling the endings of books or movies or TV shows for myself. Uh, One of my favorite shows of all time is the 1990s serial drama Twin Peaks by David Lynch. The whole plot, at least at first, revolves around this question, who killed Laura Palmer? And needless to say, once I finally took the time to watch the show, I already knew who killed Laura Palmer. Uh, I had looked it up before I even started the show. Whether it's looking up uh, a series on Wikipedia or looking up at IMDb or whatever on the internet, uh, there's something about me that I, I just, I like knowing the ending of a story before I even get to the beginning of it, right? I like seeing how it unfolds. I like knowing where it's going. I have friends that loathe me for this, to be clear. Uh, this is something that, that really upsets armchair movie critics, but for those who disagree or those who maybe uh, agree with those armchair movie critics, I remind you that Ecclesiastes says that the end of something is better than the beginning of something. So, we have gotten my bad habit out of the way, the, out of the way right? But I think part of the reason I do this is because I recognize that there is a relationship between the beginning and the end of something, right? It's intrinsic. Sometimes the beginning is just like the end, right? We end up in the same place that we were at the beginning of a movie or a story. And other times you can kind of trace the way that a story is told to see how the author, director, or someone takes you from point A to point B, right? And they're two very different places. But if you didn't know where you were going, you wouldn't be able to fully appreciate what was happening in the middle, right? Time is a really good example of this. In the most basic sense of the term, we really know the end of some, the, the beginning of something in reference to the end of another thing, right? And time is a good example of this. In just a few weeks, we will celebrate the beginning of a new year. But in doing so, by definition, this also means what? We'll be bidding farewell to the end of a, of a different year. One of my favorite Christian examples of this comes from Athanasius of Alexandria. He wrote a famous book that's often read during Christmas time. It's called On the Incarnation. And he tells us that his goal in the book is not to defend the fact that the baby born in Bethlehem is actually God, but instead that the one who died on the cross is actually the Word of God. It's an interesting move. He doesn't spend his energy explaining why Jesus was born in a manger or why Mary was a virgin, or the meaning of being offered frankincense, myrrh, and gold. These might be the kinds of things we would expect in a book titled On the Incarnation, right? But no. Instead, he explains not why Jesus had to be born, but why it was that Jesus had to die. The Christ we celebrate at Christmas is specifically the crucified and risen one. The one who did not just come to earth, but specifically came to earth so that he could die. We must begin at the cross in order to rightly understand the cradle. So I'm sure as we read the passage this morning, a few of you probably looked around and asked yourselves, maybe you leaned over to your spouse and you thought, is someone going to let him know that it's Christmas and not Easter? I am well aware. However... I think you all know me well enough by now that I like to let the Bible and its teachings challenge us, right? I like to let it stretch us, let it kind of think outside the box with the way we engage 
the Scriptures that God's given us. And I think this text forces us to think deeply about what it means to be human. More specifically, this text forces us to think specifically about what it means for Jesus to be human. And at the heart of it, that's actually what Christmas is all about, right? At Christmas, we celebrate that Jesus has become one of us, that He was born of a virgin in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He breathed the same air as us, walked on the same earth as us. And so while the context for Pilate saying, behold the man, might seem a little, like I said, unconventional for a Christmas sermon, I also think it's maybe the most appropriate place that we could begin. Jesus is a man, and this is what we celebrate at Christmas. In order to understand the beginning of Jesus' life, we must begin at the end of it. Or, to put it another way, to understand Jesus' birth, we must begin at Jesus' death. Because as we said, the beginning of something is always known in reference to its ending. So this morning, I want to explore uh, what it means for Jesus to become human. Which, of course, this in turn means we have to define what it means to be human in the first place, right? So, these are going to be our two points. Simple if you're a note taker. What it means to be human and what it means for Jesus to be human. Now, I will concede the nature of this message. It requires me to preach a little differently than I usually do. Usually, I like picking a text and sticking within the boundaries of just that text, right? Looking at it, digging deep into it, looking at the context, looking at the words, all that different stuff. Uh, this morning, however, I'm going to approach it a little differently. You can think of it more as like a biblical theology of what it means for Jesus to be a human, right? So rather than looking at, well, what's, what does Pilate say specifically, what is uh, leading up to this, what happens immediately after this, what's the context? Instead, I want to focus on this phrase, behold the man. That's going to be our guiding principle for this morning. I want to show that, uh, this, that from cover to cover, that the story of humanity, what it means for, for Jesus to be a man, is consistent throughout the entire book, and that it finds its climax in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This, I think, will orient us uh, to rightly ponder the mystery of Christ's incarnation this Christmas. Uh, so pray with me, and then we will dig into the text together. God, we are, we are very grateful this morning that you took on our likeness. We thank you that we can celebrate your coming, and I celebrate the gift of salvation through your Son's assumption of the flesh. I pray that our hearts would be softened, that our ears would be opened, and that we would be given eyes of faith to see the truths that you have revealed to us and passed down through your church, generation to generation, as contained in your scriptures. And so please uh, be with us, uh, I pray, as we uh, embark on holiday travels, as we enjoy fellowship and time together, that we would, we would contemplate deeply the mystery of the incarnation, that God would become man uh, so that man could be united in the resurrection of the Son and become like God. It's in your Son's name I pray, amen. So what does it mean to be human? What we celebrate when we come together to talk about Advent is that Jesus is one of us, right? We've established this. He's a human. But what does this mean? 
On the one hand, it could seem like the most basic sentence that we could say about Jesus, right? I mean, there are plenty of non-Christians who even agree with it. There's very few people who would argue that Jesus was not a human being that lived and walked among the earth. Even secularists believe this. They might think he was more of a cultic leader than he was actually the Son of God. However, they still believe he was a man. They believe he was real. So, in in that sense, it's the most basic and simple thing we can say about Jesus. But on the other hand, the confession that Jesus is human is perhaps the most complicated one that we could articulate. Like I mentioned in the weekly update email this week, it took the church centuries to figure out the right way to talk about what it meant for Jesus to be human. History tells us that this actually isn't an easy concept to understand. The deeper you dig, the more questions you find, right? Was he more God than man, or was he more man than God? Did these two natures blend at all, or did they stay separated from each other? What about whenever he expresses weakness as a human being? What does that mean? I thought he was God, but he's also a man. It's very complicated, right? As Pilate presents Jesus and tells the crowd, imploring them to behold the man, it forces us to ask this question. What does it mean for Jesus to be a man? And I think the significance of this scene takes on a new meaning if we think more deeply about it. There's two ways I really want to define this this morning. These aren't exhaustive. We could probably find other things that would add to this definition, but these are the two, the two biggies for the sake of time. I know it's Christmas Eve. You don't want me to take forever. I don't want me to take forever either. So, we're going to focus on two things. The first is this. To be human is to be made in the image of God. It's the first thing that we're working with. The idea of the image of God is a fairly common starting place for thinking about what it means to be a human being. In fact, it's a really good starting place to think about what it means to be a human being. The image of God is our motive to uphold a Christian ethic. It's how we interact with the people around us. Especially in the modern world, affirming the image of God in humans is important, right? It's our reason that we care for protecting the unborn, for example. It's the reason that we stand against physician-assisted suicide. The reason we are called to love the sojourner and to love the least of these is because we see the image of God in them. We know that we have an obligation to love them. That being said, I also think this category can inform us as we reflect on the birth of Christ and what it means for us and our salvation. Genesis 1 is where we get this language, right? We're, we're, most of us are probably very familiar with the creation narrative. Genesis 1 says this, And God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now I want to pause and observe something about this part of the creation story. And if you want to see what I mean, feel free to turn to Genesis 1. You don't have to. Um, But as we look through this creation narrative, God has been creating through commands this whole time, right? We're very familiar with this, right? Let there be light. That's what he says. The text says that. Listen to the rhythm of the text. Then God said, let there be light. Next day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters. Next day. 
Then God said, let there be water under the sky gathered into one place. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate day from night. Then God said, let the, let the water swarm with living creatures. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds. And then we get to the creation of the human, and the text says what? Then God says, let us make man in our image. The rhythm changes, right? God breaks the pattern. Instead of just commanding, God deliberates. He explains what it is is distinct about the human being. He says, among his triune self, let us make man in our image. God tells us what he's going to do. He announces the project of creating humans, and he specifies two things about it. We'll be made in his image, we'll be made according to his likeness. We know these first two humans as Adam and Eve, who fail to live in obedience to God like us humans are apt to do, and in doing so, they actually mess up this lineage. We see this directly in Genesis 5. Scriptures tell us that Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in whose likeness? In his likeness and in his image. The text doesn't say that Adam fathered Seth in the image of God in hopes of restoring harmony with him. Instead, this lineage was fractured. So now we inherit the sinful nature of our parents, right? This is, this is why we are born sinners. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Appreciate it. This is the first real marker of what we can say about what it means to be human, right? We have something unique about us collectively that we were designed in, in a unique blueprint to bear the image of God. However, we're also stuck with this problem that we have this disordered representation of this image, right? It's, it's been sort of refracted in a way that, that it looks uh, similar to the original design, but not perfect because it falls short of the glory of God. And in doing so, we've, we've lost our ability, really, to bear the likeness of God, right? I mean, isn't that fundamentally what sin has done to us? We actually don't represent His likeness because it messed up our ability to represent Him properly. So, let's, let's put a pin in that idea, right? We'll come back to it. So, we have the image of God, but it's also, also been sort of messed up, and we can no longer properly represent the likeness of God. Second point I want to make about what it means to be human is to be human is to be finite. Or if we want to put it a little more bluntly, to be human is to die. Benjamin Franklin said it a little less dark. Nothing is certain except death and taxes, right? It's a bit of a funny saying, but it's true. Death is the one thing that comes for us all. We can't outrun it. Merry Christmas. I know, this is not what you were anticipating whenever you stepped in the door, is it? I know it seems a little grim to say out loud, but I do think it is fundamentally what it means for us to be creatures, right? For us to be created creatures and not God. We have a beginning. We have an ending. I don't like to play hypotheticals with the Bible, right? But let's ask ourselves, just as a thought exercise, what happens if Adam and Eve don't sin? right? Like, what happens if they don't eat of the apple? Or fruit. I guess it never specifies it's an apple. Would they be eternal in the same way God was eternal? 
Or is it more consistent with Scripture to recognize that they had a fixed beginning? They were created. They weren't gods. They were still dependent upon God's providence. So, we know that, that having a terminus or having an end, it's innately human. Even if it didn't look like death in the garden before sin, they still had a fixed point of beginning. And if God had taken away His sustenance of them, what would have happened to them? They wouldn't have lived. Being finite is part of what it means to not be God. In fact, God Himself reminds us of this at the very beginning of the Bible, here in the creation narrative. After Adam and Eve eat of the tree, He puts Adam in his place, reminding him that since they've eaten of the tree, he will eat bread by the sweat of his brow until he returns to the ground from which he was taken. For you are dust, and you will return to dust, right? He reminds humanity that they are finite. Recognizing this is part of what it means to exist as humans. It's seen again in Psalm 104. I've brought this up in a a previous sermon in part because it's a text I grapple with all the time because it just blows my mind. I've been trying to get to the bottom of it for a year now. Uh, If any of you guys get to the bottom of it, let me know because that would be great. The psalmist says this, starting in verse 27. These, and he's talking about the creatures of the earth, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. And when you send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. Our very breath depends on living in the face of a mighty creator, God. And when he takes that breath away, we die and return to our dust. It's what makes us human. In fact, the psalmist seems to imply we actually aren't truly created until we have our breath taken away from us so that God can give us His Spirit. It's like Ecclesiastes 9 says, those who live know that they will die. Now, I really don't think I need to spend much more time trying to get you to buy into this, mostly because it's pretty self-evidently true, right? I mean, All of us have dealt with this in one way or another. Some of you have lost parents, spouses, siblings, friends. In just the four years I have been on staff, we've had to walk through losing members off of our membership role. I've been to more funerals in the last four years than I had in 24 years of living before then. We navigated COVID as a a community. I mean, we watched headlines about how many deaths were happening for like a year and a half every single morning. I don't know that any of us need convincing that humans die. But I do think it's good to remind us we are finite. We have limits, and those limits are exemplified in death. So, we have these two starting places, right, of what it means to be human. To be human is to be in the image of God, and it's also to be one who dies. Now, Are you ready for the good news? Because it is Christmas Eve, and I think there is joy to be had. Here's the good news. Pilate doesn't stand before the crowds and say, behold, a dog. 
He doesn't stand in front of the crowds and say, behold, this effigy of a man. No. What does he say? Behold the man. Though he was likely trying to mock Jesus' authority, though he was trying to tease the followers of Jesus, Pilate's comment actually makes an important theological point for us, right? Jesus actually has this in common with us. And this is good news for us. For those of us who want to rightly bear God's image and those of us who want to have eternal life, this is the best news we could ever receive. That the one who is being led to the cross is actually one who is like us. Jesus is human like we are human and he is truer and better than we could ever be. So let's re-revisit these two points, but through the lens of the life of Christ, of Christ being human, right? What does it mean for Jesus to be human? We talked about how sin had fractured the process of man being in the image and likeness of God. But there is still hope for us because Jesus is the image bearer we couldn't be. By telling us to behold the man, Pilate's actually pointing us to the deeper reality that Jesus also partakes in the image of God. But he's a more perfect embodiment of that image. A true, perfect human being. This is the same kind of language that the Scriptures use. Colossians 1 calls Jesus the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. What is invisible in the created order is made visible at the birth of Jesus. Hebrews 1 tells us that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature. That phrase, exact expression, is the word caricature. It's, it's like a tool for scratching or engraving on a coin or a seal, right? In the most literal sense, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the visibly engraved image of the divine. And now... At Advent, he's made visible for us to be able to see and understand. Consider the beginning of John's gospel. No one has ever seen God, the one and only God, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. Instead, he, that is the Word incarnate, has revealed him. In Exodus, Yahweh tells the Israelites that nobody can see God and live. But now we can look to Jesus right? Him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, taking on the form of the human being, so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered to death. Until Jesus took on the form of humanity and dwelled on the earth as one of us, we had no real idea what it meant to be human. All of our examples fell short. Sin had so deeply tainted our vision of what humans, what we thought humans were supposed to be, that we actually weren't living as humans at all, right? We weren't doing what we were designed to do. We were having an inhuman life. We should have preferred the goodness of God over our sin, but we were far too content with making our own lives. But now, because of our Savior's coming, we can behold the man the perfect human who is visible. The end relates to the beginning. Jesus comes at the fullness of time, fulfilling this original mandate for humanity to bear the image and likeness of God. 
Early church father Irenaeus of Lyon highlights this point well. He says, in long times past, it was said that man was made in the image of God, but it was not shown, for the word was yet invisible, after whose image man was created. And because of this, man easily lost the likeness. When, however, the word became flesh, he confirmed both of these, for he both showed forth the image truly, and he reestablished the likeness in a sure manner assimilating man to the invisible Father through the Word become visible. Jesus became the very image of God that we failed to embody. And being God Himself, being this exact expression of God, then we no longer have a gap between creation and Creator, right? That finiteness, we can overcome it through the Word, through the crucified Son. There are, of course, obvious parallels to the second point of what it means to be human that we talked about, right? In his call to behold the man, Pilate also reminds us that Jesus comes to die in the same way that we die. The good news of Pilate's cry is that Jesus not only perfectly embodies the image, it's that he embodied this image for the sake of facing death so that he could defeat it. He came to die as a sacrifice for us, as prophesied in the days of old. Paul highlights this in 1 Corinthians 15. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. In delivering Jesus over to be killed, Pilate actually plays a role in depicting Jesus to be this second Adam. In the same way that we were created from the dust, we can now, through the crucifixion of Christ, be created from heaven. The natural can be subjected to the spiritual. When Pilate says, behold the man, and delivers Jesus to die on the cross, he points us to a bigger reality embodied in the entire life of Jesus. That this whole unfolding of human history has been God working out His plan to make humanity in His image and His likeness. Not in the concrete, natural way that we typically think that means, but in the spiritual way. It's not just to bear some kind of resemblance. No, to live in the image and likeness of God is to take up your cross so that you may live anew through the Spirit. I know this probably sounds like a really weird way to think of it, um, but what what if Pilate was unknowingly pointing us towards the gospel whenever he says, behold the man? What if Pilate's words actually aren't an insult of something but instead more like a prophetic word, confirming that Jesus was the true human being that the Father intended to make in His image and likeness all the way back in Genesis 1. What if Pilate's actually reminding us that being human means being made in the image and likeness, and this is most clearly embodied in Jesus' sacrificial death? And this, of course, gives a whole new meaning to Christ's utterance and cry on the cross it is completed. 
At the cross of Christ, we are able to see what it truly means for Jesus to have been incarnate, to have taken on the likeness of humanity, to truly be a human like us. Starting at the cross of Christ, we realize that the end is indeed tied up with the beginning, right? We know that the death of Jesus is what actually brings us life. If at Christmas we say that Jesus took on the likeness of humanity, and if we say that He is the perfect example of what it means to be human, then this means dying to our earthly selves for God's glory is the most human thing we can do. It's really the right response to Christmas. The early Christian martyr, Ignatius of Antioch, understood this well. Knowing that he would soon be killed for his faith, he writes to the church at Rome. He's trying to write them. We, we don't know if he knew the church at Rome, like if he'd been there or anything like that, but he knew he was being led to his death soon, and he didn't want anyone to prevent him from his martyrdom. So he's writing in hopes that they would not prevent him from being killed, and he says this, The birth pangs are laid upon me. Grant me this, brothers. Do not hinder me from living. Do not wish that I should die. Do not give the world the one who wishes to be God's, nor charm him with the material. Allow me to receive the pure light, for when I have arrived there, I will truly be human. For Ignatius, the birth pangs of his true birth as a human were not upon him whenever he was in his mother's womb. They came upon him as he was being led to his death. The true human is the one who is united in a death like Christ's so that they may be raised to new life through the Spirit. And that is what it means to be human. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, as Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians. The true human being is not made of dust, but is made from heaven, and this is the good news of the gospel. We can behold the man, Jesus Christ, who ascends the cross to be sacrificed, but he doesn't stay dead. He resurrects so we could be united. And while there's a temptation to divorce Christmas and Easter in our minds, I've grown convinced over the years that we should never do this, that we should actually remember that, that Jesus, in expressing His humanness at His birth, is also trying to point forward to expressing His humanness on the cross in His death. They are inevitably linked. Jesus came for a purpose. He wasn't born for the fun of it. He was born specifically to be the one to take away the sins of the world. These are not different stories. They are instead the beginning and the ending of one coherent story of salvation. The baby we celebrate today would one day be led like a sheep to the slaughter, but in doing so, he would show us what it meant to bear God's image and to die to ourselves so we could be raised to new life. And this is something worth celebrating. I mean, think about the implications of this for Christmas, right? We, we talk about Christmas joy, and we like to see the traditional pictures and, and all these things, all these things that make us feel warm and fuzzy. Uh, but nothing ought to make you feel warmer and fuzzier than the fact that you can actually live as a free, true human being 
that you could not do that before the gospel. And yet now, because of the coming of our Savior, because He has begun this grueling process, entering the world, coming for the sake of dying someday, but we can celebrate that that process is beginning as He is born. And in doing so, we are actually getting to know ourselves better, right? We are becoming true humans as we follow Christ. And this, I think, is true good news and the true joy of the Incarnation. This is why I think we can celebrate at Christmas, not just, because, not just because a baby was born, but because we know who that baby would someday be, right? The end is tied up with the beginning. And so my challenge to you this year is, is to not get caught up in, in the traditional imagery and joy of just thinking of a baby, but think about the implications for salvation. Think about the implications for your salvation, the salvation of your neighbor's. Think about the implications for how you live your life in the coming year. That if Jesus has shown us at Christmas what it means to be truly human by taking on the form of humanity, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited, but instead humbling himself to take on flesh, think about how that should change the way that you live your life. If that's what it means to be a perfect human, is to count others as more important than yourselves, like Paul says, when he writes that. Maybe that's how we should live our next year, right? Maybe that should be our New Year's resolution, is to take up our cross, to follow Christ, even to the point of death, for the sake of being obedient to God. I'm going to ask Raymond to come up and pray uh, so that I can get ready to close us in song this morning. Uh, but if you, if you are here, and this is new to you, if you have not heard the story that one day, a long time ago, uh, God himself took on flesh so that he could live a perfect life as the true human being, die a death we deserve and resurrect. Find one of our elders. They're both here this morning. I can promise you, uh, despite how busy the holidays can be, they would be glad to take time to talk to you about the gospel if you need to have further conversation about that this morning. Behold the man this Christmas. Behold the man. Jesus Christ, true God, true man, who now can shape you to be truly human. Let's pray together.